You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. OMG, that is so over the top. Welcome back, everyone. It's so nice to have you with us. Please continue to spread the word that we have something worthwhile to say in both our history series and in our character workshop. For those of you who are not aware, Teller from Jerusalem can also be viewed via YouTube by going to tellerfromjerusalem.com, where each episode in both series is enhanced and enriched with spiffy visuals that clarify and significantly augment our discussions. We left off, after many tangents, how nationalism was percolating in Europe. This percolation would certainly affect the Jews who were percolating in their own suffering and victimization from government-sponsored anti-Semitism that was heartily embraced by the people. In today's episode, we're going to examine the charming house of Romanov, and although nothing can invoke more terror in a Jew than Nazi Germany, but lagging not all that far behind is the, not to mention the contemporaneous Arab terror, but lagging not that far behind is the suffering under the czars, which reminds us of that epic line from Fiddler on the Roof, what blessings you make on a czar? Why, of course. May the czar live and be well far away from us. So behind Nazi Germany and the czars, and of course, followed by Joseph Stalin, who subjected Soviet Jewry to a repressive authoritarian regime that was dedicated to snuff out Jewish learning and observance, Zionist activity and Jewish identity, Stalin's successors were successful in decreasing Jewish knowledge, if not in fact erasing it, in over 70 years of oppression, which inspired a song like this, from JEP. Tav Shin Lamed Gimel, New York City, Dear Nikolai. How are you, my dear Nikolai? What's new behind the iron wall? In this letter I'll write to you of life as a The first Aliyah, we employ the Jewish term Aliyah, meaning the immigration to Israel, which is an ascent, was a consequence of anti-Semitic persecution with the official backing of the Russian Empire following the assassination of Alexander, Tsar Alexander II in March 1st, 1881. This affected the five million Jews that were situated between the Baltic Sea and the Black Sea called the Pale of Settlement. Now, Jews were forced to go to the Pale of Settlement as life was simply just too unbearable under anti-Semitism of Christian countries. After March 1881, Russian Jews basically only had one choice, to stay and endure the suffering or to leave. Tragically, many of them did not leave. The majority stayed, suffering persecution. Still, a large number decided to leave 
and the preferred destination was the United States. In the 1880s, 135,000 Jews went to the United States. In the 1890s, 280,000. In 1900, in the first decade, 700,000, and that continued at the very same rate until the beginning of World War I. Between 1881 and 1924, two and a half million Jews left the Pale of Settlement. Jews in Russia suffered also under the patriotic reaction to the Napoleonic Wars. The Russian churches, after the Russian defeat at Austerlitz, promoted how Napoleon was so favorable to the Jews. Up until now, Jews were defamed as being enemies of Christianity. Now they were cast in an even more dangerous role as being enemies of the state. And this is the slippery slope that leads to genocide. Factually, the Jews did not side with Napoleon, not in the Napoleonic Wars, but in fact, they helped the Russian army for religious reasons. Because the fear of the rabbis was that under Napoleon, which was much more benevolent, magnanimous, philanthropic than under the Tsar, as a matter of fact, French Jewry was emancipated in 1789. Within 20 years, the rate of assimilation and intermarriage in France equaled that of America today, which are outrageous statistics. Reminded me of a joke I heard from Rabbi Joseph Telushkin that there was this American Jew who was very determined to get into one of these very posh, exclusive country clubs. So we interviewed, and they said, what do you do for a living? And all his answers were just perfect, spot on. And they asked him, what's your religion? When he learned that he was Jewish, he said, sorry, sir, but we're full. We have no more room for any new candidates. But he was determined. Yeah, 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 yeah. So he waited a few years, and he reapplied, and he adopted one of these very pompous-sounding non-Jewish names, like Henry Hudson Parkway III. What's your name, sir? Henry Hudson Parkway III. Very good, very good. Where do you live? Have an estate in Westchester. I raise horses. Wonderful. And what do you do for a living? I have a seat on the stock exchange. Great. One last question. What's your religion? My religion? Well, I'm a guy. I'm a full-fledged Gentile. And uh, anyways, so what happened was the great rabbis ruled that if Napoleon is supported, then the condition of the Jews will improve, but their hearts will drift from God. But if Tsar Alexander were to win, the state of the Jews would be lowered, but they would draw closer to God. Again, that's the same dilemma of Fiddler uh, on the Roof. May the Tsar be kept far, far away from us. Now, the Hasidic leaders didn't know if to support Napoleon in his conquest of Russia or to support Russia. It's interesting to note that what informs the decisions of religious leaders are not necessarily considerations that a layman would grapple with. By way of contemporaneous example, the evangelical community is a serious force to reckon with. They represent somewhere between 90 million and 100 million voters in America, and they can decide a national election. They are a devoutly religious group that is principled, and accordingly, you would imagine Donald Trump, with his flamboyant and materialistic lifestyle, unrefined tongue, would not be a logical candidate for their support. And surely, if they would have a choice, he might not be. And yet and yet, the evangelical leadership is far more mature and responsible to qualify or disqualify an individual over the botched past. Christian leadership with a Judeo-Christian worldview is seeking a country with religious values where the word of the, word of the Lord can be observed and not constitutionally trampled. The fact is that the Republican Party, and by and large the judges that they will appoint and endorse, will sanction the values that are important and cherished to a religious community and a wholesome country. 
The evangelicals see a future of America predicated on how we as a nation respond. More specifically, it is in the evangelical interest to support a candidate which supports Israel, to support a candidate that is pro-life, to support a candidate that is anti-same-sex marriage and anti-LGBTQ legitimization. Back to history. The Hasidic leadership was divided if to support Napoleon or the Tsar. Now you think prima facie, how in the world could any rabbi who cherished his life value a Tsar which supported the pogroms? And that indeed was the perspective of the first rabbi, grand rabbi of Rimanov. However, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the first Lubavitcher Rebbe, felt that supporting the Tsar, there's no way that such an anti-Semitic, rabid monster of a man would ever attempt to assimilate the Jews. But since Jews were not totally united in their loyalty, or just because they were always suspect in the Tsar's eyes, when Napoleon was defeated, there was no legitimization to strike at the Jews. And the next Tsar, Nicholas I, uh, instituted for Jews a draft into the Russian army, which began as early as eight and nine years old. These boys that were drafted were known as the Cantonists. So in Hebrew, Cantonistim. They would commence their service, rested from the family at the age of eight or nine. Formal draft began at the age of 18. And then they would be drafted for another 25 years, meaning a service of 35 to 35 years in the Russian army by way of contemporaneous comparison. Induction today in Austria is six months. In Denmark is four months. In the United Kingdom is 12 months. In Egypt is two years. In Israel, it just changed. For men, it's two and a half years. For women, it's two years. Which means that conscription for a Jew in the Russian army was 99% longer then and 90% longer today than what was the average of everyone else. The purpose of the conscription was to force religious conversion to Russian Orthodoxy. The boys were submitted to baptism, and if they wished to live, that was their only choice. Otherwise, they'd be subjected to starvation, sleep deprivation, exposure to the cold, and every torture imaginable, even things we could never imagine. Discipline was maintained by the threat of starvation and corporal punishment. So when they were drafted for first, from the age of officially 12 years old, but it started at eight or nine, and then till 18, and then another 25 years, what happened was they were wrested from their family and sent away out from the Pale of Settlement to the Russian tundra in Siberia, a distance of several weeks' journey. And when they would be released 35, 34 years later, they never remembered who their family was, if they were still alive, what their religion was, and that was exactly the agenda. As often happens, cruelty is contagious. The evil of the Tsar, the officials, those of the church, spilled over to the Jewish community. The rule is, with very few exceptions, that your environment will influence you. It can work for the good, and it can work for the bad. Usually, it works for the bad. The paramount feature one should look for when you're looking to buy a new home is, what is the neighborhood? Meaning, who are the people who live there? These are the people that will influence your children, the family that you're trying to raise. And there's an error that parents make, as Rabbi Felishkin points out, quoting Daniel Taub, that when searching for school for people for their first toddler, parents go down to the school and they check the preschool, the nursery, the kindergarten, if you come from Brooklyn, the pre-1A. And what they do is they don't check the children from the upper grades or the school's graduates. Parents should be chiefly focused on what kind of person does the school produce. 
Uh, this is a subject that we'll actually deal with in our character series, so I'll leave that for then. But the fact of the matter is, just to summarize, a bad influence is more powerful and puissant than a good influence. My best proof would be many more youth, even from the best homes, are influenced to get involved in drugs and other self-destructive practices by bad influences than a kid who is on drugs will be influenced by good influences to get off drugs. Okay, so how in the world did the rot of the czars influence the Jewish community? Who were the victims? And the answer is, is that the Russians made quotas of Jews that had to be conscripted into the Russian army. This is reminiscent of the Gestapo, which made demands upon the Judenrat, the elder council of Jewish elders, to supply Jews for work details and to be sent to the death centers. Because conscription to the Tsar's army meant subjugation to brutality, severe conditions, and total removal from anything of religion, and contravening all religious precepts, anybody could avoid the draft, would do everything within their wherewithal to avoid it. So the communal leaders had no choice, at least so they thought, because they were responsible to provide the number, they would grab these boys, and they always resorted to the easiest solution, which was to go to the poorest homes. They would grab the boys, keep them in the communal buildings, and then hand them over to the Russian authorities. Every community had special officers that were known in Yiddish as chappers. Chapper means a kidnapper. If you're walking in Williamsburg, which is a very intensely Hasidic neighborhood in Brooklyn, New York, a couple's walking on a Friday night, or for that matter, on a Tuesday morning, and a local attempts to mug them, they call out chapsim, the same word, and out of nowhere, the blink of an eye, 100 chassidim will come running out of the buildings and beat the living daylights out of the potential mugger. So these choppers were not scrupulous. They would not adhere to the age of 12 years old, and they would impress children at the age of 8 or 9. Now again, the objective of the Russian authorities was to get these boys away from their religion. And thus, they sent them away from the Pale of Settlement up to Siberia, and they'd never have a connection again. And it's very dubious they'd even survive this grueling trek up to Siberia. I'm going to read to you a quotation from a contemporaneous description of a person who encountered one of these Cantonist units. Quote, The officer who scored them said, They have collected a crowd of cursed little Jew boys of eight or nine years old. The officer who handed them over said, It's dreadful, and that's all about it. A third were left on the way. And then the officer pointed to the earth. Not half will reach their destination, he said. So he asked, have there been epidemics or what? I was very moved by what he said. No, no, no epidemics. They just die off, die off like flies. A Jew boy, you know, is such a frail, weakly creature, like a skinned cat. He's not used to tramping in the mud for 10 hours a day and then just eating a biscuit. Then again, being among strangers, no father, nor mother, nor petting. Well, they cough and they cough and they cough until they cost themselves into their graves. And I ask you, what use is it to them? What can they do with these little boys? They brought the children and formed them into regular ranks. It was one of the most awful sights I've ever seen. These poor, poor children. Boys of 12 or 13 might have survived, but little fellows of 8 and 10, not even a brushful of black paint could paint such a horror on canvas. Pale, exhausted, with frightened faces, they stood in thick, clumsy soldiers' overcoats with stand-up collars, fixing helpless, pitiful eyes on the garrison soldiers who were roughly getting them into ranks. With white lips and blue rings under their eyes, bore witness to fever or chill. And these sick children, without care or kindness, 
exposed to the icy winds that blew unobstructed from the Arctic Circle, were going to their graves. Once they were in, that's the end of the quotation, once they were in the Cantonists, uh, these boys had a very small life expectancy. Somewhere between 30,000 and 40,000 of them perished in the Cantonist units. The new reign of Alexander II began with a series of pogroms that were back on the scale that had not been known since the 17th century. The authorities condoned it, encouraged it, and certainly did nothing to stop it. What united the Russian people, peasants, the middle class, the czars, was a hatred of the Jew and perhaps a love of vodka. But in half a year of the pogroms, they had hit 215 Jewish communities, virtually everywhere Jews had lived. Tens of thousands of Jews were left homeless, 100,000 were ruined economically, and the value of property damage was $80 million. Each pogrom was composed of looting on a huge scale, arson, drunken brutality, rape, physical injury, and of course, murder. The pogroms resulted in an outcry from the West, but there was never a protest to the policies of anti-Semitism. To get an idea of how uninterested the West was in Russian anti-Semitism, I'm going to quote an example I saw in Daniel Gordis, that if you consider the architecture of Paris, where there stands a splendid monument to the greatest persecutor of the Jews in modern times, up to the advent of Adolf Hitler. The most triumphal of the many noble bridges across the scene, the scene is the river in Paris, is Pont Alexander III. The bridge is widely regarded as the most ornate, extravagant bridge in the city. It's classified as a French monument historique. Think about this. Alexander III was an exceptionally ruthless and cruel tyrant. There was blood on his hands by the bathtub load. It's estimated up to 200,000 Jews were murdered in the pogroms that he sponsored. By way of analogy, a little more than 100,000 Union troops were killed by Confederate soldiers. Yet, in the South today, you cannot erect a statue for a Confederate general. There is no way. So consider what would happen if France would want to put up a monument for Stonewall Jackson or Robert E. Lee, there would be such censure from America. They would stop eating French fries, French toast, and there'd be endless condemnation of France. Comparing Robert E. Lee to Alexander III would be like comparing Mary Poppins to Bloody Mary, assuming you know 16th century British history. I refer not to the drink. Now, I'm aware of the fact that I portrayed an especially dark period. We all prefer to skip over this, but there's one culminating event which Maybe I'll leave this just for our next episode, and I'll hear you and see you next on our next episode. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode, and be sure to visit tellerfromjerusalem.com you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting the TFJ code, you'll receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced prices of all Hanoch Teller products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget, you can get Teller from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to tellerfromjerusalem.com. Please see our YouTube channel for a richer than just audio experience with spiffy visual components and elements 
Also accessible from the Telefilm Jerusalem website, where the list of general and specific credits are listed.